I didn't think this day would ever come. This is the last time I'm going to say to you, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis. Uh, this is the conclusion of, I think at last count, about a 57-sermon series uh, on the book of Genesis. It's been over the last 18 months. And so we've come to the end of the beginning. Uh, Genesis is a book about beginnings. And so we're going to look at that end and what's kind of the, the last message that uh, the book of Genesis leaves us. But before I get to that text... Uh, the end of the beginning, it's important that we kind of get our minds around that. Most of you are probably old enough to remember, those of you that are younger have probably seen it on DVD, but you remember the original Star Wars? You remember how the original, the one that came out in 77, the, the first uh, one came out? You remember how that, that uh, movie ends? The rebels are triumphant, right? You know, you end with this scene on the stage where there's Luke and Lee and Han and Chewie and everybody's celebrating that, you know, the Death Star has been uh, defeated and, you know, they're, they're safe once again. But you also remember at the very end of that movie that Darth Vader's still around, right? He, you know, he, his, his little fighter jet got zapped and knocked out of the fight, but he wasn't destroyed. And so it leaves you wondering, you know, where's he going to sneak back in here? Uh, it certainly leaves you, as, as the, the writers and directors hope you would, with, a, with an appetite for more because you want to know how it really does end. You've only seen just the beginning. And it's clear that uh, the that there are battles still to fight, that there are challenges still to overcome, that the journey towards peace and freedom is still fraught with many, many dangers and pitfalls. And that's how Genesis ends. Genesis doesn't leave us in a great place. Genesis doesn't leave us with uh, the kingdom of God being ushered in in all of its glory and all of its uh, majesty and all of its power. Rather, it leaves us with an understanding of man's brokenness, this glorious ruin that man was created in the image of God, and yet because of his sin uh, and his rebellion against God, he has ruined his original nature. He has ruined that relationship for which he was created. Uh, And yet we are left with a promise of a hope uh, that a king is coming, and we're going to focus on why we need a king this morning. So we're going to read out of Genesis chapter 49. I'm going to read uh, verses 8 through 12 this morning as Jacob is an old, old man. Jacob is about to die. And he's offering a variety of, uh, of comments to and about his children. I'm not going to read all of his comments about all of his sons. We'll note a couple of the others in just a moment. But we're going to focus in on Jacob's fourth oldest son. His name is Judah. Hear the word of God as Jacob speaks to Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory forever. Let's pray. Father, as we have worshipped you with our voices, as we have confessed that Jesus is Savior and Lord and that you alone deserve praise, as we have worshipped you through the sacrament of baptism and acknowledging that you are the, the first and primary mover in our salvation, that if you don't come to us, we will not be saved. 
Now, Father, we come to worship you with our minds for one more time in the book of Genesis to seek to understand the promise that you give to your people through this announcement that Jacob made concerning his fourth oldest son. Father, we need a living hope. We need a real salvation. Man's philosophies and man's ideas can only take us so far, but they always come up short because they don't ever answer the ultimate question of the meaning of life. So we come to your word, Father, the living word, the only true word. Lord, I ask that I would not get in the way of what you want to say this morning. Lord, my words are not important. It is only your word that can penetrate our hearts and our souls and our minds and bring us to the truth that you want us to know. So, Lord Jesus, once again, we pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, to start out, I want to give you two very quick observations of, of what we know so far from the book of Genesis. We know a whole lot more than this, but this is fundamentally the, the two uh, summation points of the book of Genesis. The first one is that man has broken covenant with God. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, man uh, was placed in the garden by God. He was given a, a partner, a, a friend for life, a helpmate uh, named Eve, and they were given this glorious place in which to live. And yet God, uh, God gave them one responsibility, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, and if you eat of that tree, you will die. And they didn't listen to that word of warning. They rejected the promise of life, and they turned their backs on God, and they rebelled against Him, and they ate of that tree, and they became broken in their own sinfulness. They, but they broke covenant with God. Uh, through their rebellion, uh, the relationship is ruptured beyond our ability to repair. Our nature, your nature and my nature, because of their original sin has been corrupted so that every person who lives from Adam and Eve going forward has lost the, 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 the joy of obedience and relationship and fellowship and love with God. That's no longer our desire. That becomes abundantly clear in the book of Genesis. The world very quickly is, is torn apart by murder and strife and all kinds of sinful activity. Genesis is very clear that we are, in fact, a glorious ruin. But the second thing we know so far is this. The second thing we know is that God is going to send a redeemer, that God is going to save us. Again, from the, from the very first pages of Genesis, immediately after man sins, immediately after Adam and Eve's rebellion, God says he's going to send a redeemer who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And as we move through Genesis, we continue to see that promise unfold. God makes a promise to Noah that he's going to, uh, well, the promise here first that the son of Eve will crush uh, the head of the serpent. Then God makes a promise that through one of Noah's sons, the Redeemer will come. We find out that the son through whom it will come is Shem. As we read on, we find out that it's a son of Abraham and a son of Isaac and a son of Jacob. And that brings us to this morning, son of which one? And that's where we come to Judah, the fourth son of Abraham, or excuse me, the fourth son of Jacob. It is through him that God will provide his Redeemer. Uh, now, if we go to the next slide real quickly, uh, one of the things you need to understand in the Old Testament in ancient times, the promise always came through the oldest son uh, or one of the oldest sons. It, it, you never skipped over the oldest son yet. In this passage of Scripture, some of the things I didn't read to you but are in chapter 49, you can go back and read them later, uh, some of the comments Jacob makes about his other children. Reuben is the oldest. 
And, uh, and, and Jacob says that. He says, you're, you know, you're, you're the first few fruits of my body. You know, you're the one through whom my strength is revealed, but you're as unstable as water. And you, because of that, you won't have preeminence. And so he gives reason why he skips over Reuben. Then he comes to the next two, sons two and three, Simon and, uh, Simeon and Levi. He says, you guys are brothers of violence. And he talks about the, the murderous activity of their lives. And he says, let my soul not come into their counsel. I don't want to take advice from these guys. I don't want to live and make choices for life the way they do. So they're passed over. A little bit later on, uh, uh, one of the younger sons is also given a bit of a negative uh, uh, response where his father says, you're as a serpent in the way, a viper by the path. People that walk by you have to be careful lest they, lest they get bitten. So we're given reasons why uh, some others are left off. But then we come to Judah. And in verse 8, we read the following. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. In other words, what, what Jacob is saying through the line of Judah, through, through a descendant of Judah, God will provide a redeemer. You're going to, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. You're going to be triumphant. You're going to come and save people. You're going to defeat the enemy. But not only that, you will receive worship from your brother's sons, from, from mankind, in other words, from the household of God. You will receive praise. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that there's only one person that receives praise in the truest form of the word. I, I may praise you for something you did, or you may praise me for something that I did, but that doesn't carry the same weight as, as biblical praise. You know, when my kids do well in school, and I pat them on the back, and I say, way to go, that's great, and I praise them. That's not the same praise. What Jacob is alluding to here is that God is actually going to come in the flesh and he will be the one who is worshipped. He's the one before whom we will bow down. In other words, he will be the king. He will be the ruler. And the question that I want us to ask this morning, and, and, and I think at the answer from these pages in Scripture, is why is that important to us? What, what, do, what does a promise made over 4,000 years ago to, to the fourth son of Jacob about, about kingship, why does that matter to us? Well, I believe that, that we should be radically interested in the promises that are in these verses because they apply to us very, uh, very clearly. And I'm going to give you four reasons why I think they apply to us. The first one's found in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him. This one who comes is not only going to be royal, but he's going to be a ferocious defender. Uh, you know if you've watched any of the National Geographic shows or, or Animal Planet or, you know, you've studied, uh, you know, Wild Kingdom or anything. That was what it was when I was a kid. You know, you don't mess with the lion, right? You, you don't come between a lion when they're feasting on their prey or a lioness when, when she has her cubs with her. You just don't trifle with the king of the beasts. And that's the sense that we're getting of the personality of this one who is to come. He is going to be a ferocious defender of all that is his. Who dares rouse him? You don't want to mess with this one because he is the lion-hearted. He is the one who will defend his people to the end. 
uh, we were in South Africa a few years ago. We were at uh, Kruger National Park, and we were, uh, we were going through Kruger in a couple of, of small vans, uh, and we were looking at different wildlife, and you know, giraffes and elephants and zebras. And uh, we came across early one morning. Uh, I think we had gotten up right at... At, at dawn, maybe even a little bit before dawn. And we had gone out and we'd been traveling for maybe, oh, 25 minutes or so. And we came across a pride alliance. And as the sun began to come up, you could look over in the distance about a hundred yards from our van where we had stopped. There was a giraffe that was on its side and it, they killed it during the night and they were having breakfast. And they all had their heads down and they were eating and just having a great old time and probably talking about, you know, what was going on in the neighborhood. And so we're sitting in the van taking pictures. Um, and and we're, they're not in a fence, okay? That's an important part of the story. They're not, they're, there's, there's nothing between us and the lines. And all of a sudden, the sliding door on our van opens, and my wife, Cindy, gets out, and she's snapping pictures like this. And the, uh, this, I, I should have put the picture on the screen, but it, it was kind of fuzzy. But the second she did that, every, every head of every lion snapped around. I mean, just like that. Now, we were in the van behind the guy who was the leader of our group, but we had radios in each of the, and you could hear this voice on the radio, don't break the plane, get back, get back, close the door. And I'm like, you know, sweetie, we're not at the zoo. There, you know, well, I just want to get a little better angle. I said, oh, I thought you wanted to be part of their breakfast. But you could just see their reaction was immediate. They were not going to let anybody or anything take that giraffe away from them. And you think about the character of God, and you wonder whether you can trust him or not. You wonder whether or not you, if you put your faith in him, will he be faithful to you? Will he care for you? 4,000 years ago, God made sure that Jacob explained to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this one who comes after us, who, who comes to save us, this one who is the king will be our ferocious defender. And friends, we need a defender. We have enemies. Satan is our enemy. Peter says it very clearly, your enemy Satan walks around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We're our own worst enemies in the sinfulness of our lives. We make bad choices. We rebel against God. Sin is our enemy. Scripture is very clear that sin leads to death. Death is our enemy from which there is no salvation on our own merit. I've never found anybody that's figured out a way in their own ability to overcome death. It's simply impossible. We need a fierce defender. Paul, the end of Romans chapter 7, he looks at this condition. He looks at Satan and his attacks. He looks at his own sinfulness. He looks at the, at the result of sin being death. And here's his conclusion. What a wretched man I am. Who can possibly save me or deliver me from this body of death? You may not know it, but you need a ferocious defender. We need a champion to defeat our adversaries because it's simply not within us to do so. But secondly, not only will this king be our ferocious defender, but we also need what I'm going to call an unwavering assurance. Look at verse 10 for just a moment. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. You have a picture of a king sitting with a, you know, a ruler's staff there between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. God's plan of salvation is an unfolding plan. We know a whole lot more about it now than Jacob did. In his day and age, we have the benefit of the entire, uh, the entire 66 books of the Bible. Uh, we can read about the coming of the Messiah. We can see that in the person of Jesus. We see his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Uh, we have the book of Revelation. We're given the promise that, that he's going to return. He's going to, he's going to make all things right. But this is an unfolding plan of redemption. And everything about it is not completely clear today. 
We don't know who is, who is going to come to Christ and who isn't. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. There are a lot of things about this plan of salvation that we can't see. But God sees the beginning from the end. He's not restricted by time. He's not restricted by space. And the one who makes this promise is patiently executing his strategy to perfection. And he wanted us to know that this king will rule, that nothing will keep him from receiving the obedience of the people. And you say, well, Tom, I look around me today, I see a whole lot of people that don't obey Jesus. <laughs> I see a whole lot of people who are not interested at all in whether or not he's, he's their savior. And there's sometimes, Tom, quite frankly, when I wonder myself, and I'm, I'm in that same boat with you, sometimes I go, okay, Lord, this is right, isn't it? You know, I have those moments of darkness myself. Don't think being a pastor excludes you from that kind of uh, tug of war in your own heart, in your own soul. And I come to a verse like this and I say, thank you, Lord, for the promise. Thank you for an unwavering assurance that even if I can't see it, even if I can't understand all of it today, I know that your word is true and I know that what you promise you will bring about. Nothing is going to stand in the way of this king's rule in God's good time and in God's good pleasure. And I think that unwavering assurance is important for us this morning. My third observation comes out of verse 11 uh, where I'm going to say we need a humble and powerful provider. And you think those two maybe don't go together, but I think this verse actually uh, demonstrates it in somewhat of an obscure way. You got to kind of think about it a little bit. Uh, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestas and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What is that saying? Well, first of all, riding a foal or a donkey, if a king is seated on a, a, a war horse, and he comes to town with a whole bunch of soldiers around him, you know that we're going to war. You know that the land is not at peace. You know, you know that there's turmoil. Maybe there's an invader coming in. Maybe, maybe it's a king from another nation that's coming to conquer us. But you know that there's no peace in the land. But when you see the king riding on a foal, riding on a donkey, riding on a mule, you know that the king is at peace. You know that everything is okay. You know that, that there's no worry of an outside invader. You know that the, the king is, is humble enough to come and to be amongst the people, but the way in which he comes to you says, you know what, everything's okay. I've defended the nation. We are, we are safe. You're okay under my care. So we have a sign of peace that the, that the enemy has been conquered and that the land is at rest. But then he goes on to say that, that this cult is tied to a vine, to the, to the choicest of vine. In other words, a vine that's just overflowing with grapes. Now, anybody that knows anything about donkeys, and I had to look this up because I didn't, but anybody who knows anything about this knows you don't tie an animal like this to a vine like that because he's going to eat it all up. When you come back, there won't be any grapes. There won't be any leaves. There won't even be any branches. He's going to devour all of it. So anybody with any common sense says, don't tie the donkey to, to the vine because we need those grapes for wine and for fruit and for all kinds of other things unless there's an unbelievable overabundance of grapes to the point that you don't care if the donkey eats them or not because there's a lot more where that came from. The promise that Jacob is giving through this king is that his kingdom will be one of abundance that we cannot begin to fathom. We cannot imagine the degree to which God is going to provide for his people. We read in the New Testament, eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has in store for those who trust him. And that's what Jacob is saying. 
The abundance is such that you won't even be able to describe it. And yet in our day and age, in our generation, our separation from God seems to leave this deepest yearning unmet. We're we're not sure that God's going to provide, and we begin to look for provisions in other places than His grace. These yearnings of our heart are unmet, so we seek satisfaction in in food or in wealth or in sex or or in adventure of some kind uh, in life. We're we're looking uh, for that fulfillment in the things that have been created, and instead of looking for them in our Creator, I said to Cindy about, I don't know, this was probably about a year ago, it was one of those moments where you, you had one of those days that just didn't go all that well. And, you know, you're kind of wondering, you know, maybe there's something else out there. You know, you just kind of had a bad day. So I come home, and I said to Cindy, you know what we ought to do when Jordan graduates from high school, which just happened a month ago? I said, we ought to sell everything. And we ought to, we ought to, we ought to, get, we ought to get in the car and just go on an adventure and just see what's out there. And she said, I tell you what, why don't we not sell anything? Why don't you take about $400 and see how far that adventure gets you, and then come back and tell me how it went? <laughs> This is the same person I said, if, if, if you had to live someplace besides Kirkwood, you have to go, you know, someplace anywhere else in the world. She said, I can't live in Kirkwood, but any place else in the world. I said, yeah, where would you go? She said, to Pear. <laughs> Boy, she's drinking the Kool-Aid. I'll, I'll tell you what, I worry about her a little bit. But you know what? We, we, we long for a place like this. We long for, for a spiritual, physical, emotional wholeness and abundance that meets the deepest longings of our hearts. I'm not talking about wanting a new swimming pool in the backyard. I'm not talking about wanting a dream vacation. I'm talking about those moments when you wake up in the middle of the night, you say, is this all there is? I think I'm missing something. I have everything and yet I have nothing. This king comes to answer that question. He's going to be the ultimate provider. When God's peace comes There will be no more lack, whether it's spiritual, emotional, or physical. But you also need to see in this verse that our rest, that our peace, that we enjoy through Christ and ultimately will enjoy in heaven is not one without a fight. Look at what this king had to do. His garments are washed in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. It's a metaphorical picture of the cross, friends. It says that Jesus had to wade in knee-deep into blood in order for your redemption and my redemption, in order for this provision to be able to take place, our sins had to be accounted for. And mercy comes at a price, but it is a price that this king is more than willing to pay. I believe we need this humble and powerful provider. And one other observation out of this text is found in verse 12. I believe that we need true relational intimacy. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. There's a little metaphor going on here that we need to understand. His eyes are darker than wine. It it says that he's all-knowing. Nothing escapes his attention. You know, you say that somebody has piercing eyes. You know, when they look at you, sometimes you want to look away because it feels like they can look into your heart and soul and read even your thoughts. That's this king. This is the king that is all-knowing. But the other metaphor is that his teeth are whiter than milk. And, and in Scripture, uh, the mouth is, is, is that from which you speak, either truth or a lie. But his teeth are, are, are just pure white. And the purity of white represents the truth which will, with which he will speak. There will be no lie found on his lips. Our king speaks truth. Our king is all-knowing. He sees everything, and he will not 
speak anything but the truth. Why is this important? I believe it's important because I just look at, at relationships between people, whether it's me or other folks. What's more ruinous to a human relationship than the lack of knowledge and honesty? I can't tell you how many people have sat in my office and said, I wish I knew this about him or her before we got married. Or I found out that, that he or she, they, they've been lying all the time. I can't trust them. And everything that Jacob has said up to this point, this included, speaks to the fact that we can trust this king. He knows your heart. You know, some of those bad thoughts you had last week, you didn't say them. You know, you might have been smiling at the person. I had one of those moments this week. I'm not going to confess too much of that, but I was smiling at this person. And I was just looking so delighted. And in my heart, I was just, you know, I was just punching them right in the nose. Uh, and, and, and nobody that's here, so don't panic. Um, but what a sinful heart I have. I wouldn't think a God of complete purity would want to have anything to do with me, quite frankly. Why would he want to bother with me? He knows I, there's nothing I can hide from him. I can hide stuff from you guys. I can't hide anything from him and neither can you. And yet even as he is all-knowing, he speaks his truth into our lives, which is a message of grace. It's a message of mercy. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of life. So here's my question. Where is this king? (laughs) I want to meet him. Jacob, I I love the message. Holy Spirit, thank you for giving it to Where is this guy? Well, you know probably what I'm about to say. This is our king. This is King Jesus. This is the one who has come and has taken my place when I deserved condemnation. And he is the one who has given salvation through his death on the cross and his resurrection. He is the one who has conquered. He is the true Lion of Judah. I did it in my study this last week, I, the, this phrase, Lion of Judah. Uh, there's only one other place in Scripture where that's used. I thought, it was, I thought it was in a couple of places with the prophets. But there's no other direct statement of the Lion of Judah in Scripture until you get all the way to the end. Sixty-five books later, roughly 2,000-plus years later, this name is mentioned again, uh, probably not for the first time in conversation, but certainly for the first time in written form. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see a vision of heaven. And the Apostle John is interacting with with, uh, the message that is kind of what's going on behind the scenes. And this name is brought up again. So I'm going to do two things to close the service this morning. The first one is in just a minute I'm going to read Revelation chapter 5. It's about uh, 14 verses. Not going to be too long. But I'm going to read it all the way through because I want you to get a sense of, of what we've been talking about, this ferocious defender, this assurance, this powerful provider that is, that is ours in Christ. But then to reinforce that, after I, after I read the passage, I'm going to show you a, a very brief DVD clip. It's about six minutes long. And it was produced by a student in, in our church in, in, in a project for her class in high school. And I think it answers the question, why we need a king. So listen to Revelation and then watch the screen. And then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one was found in heaven or on earth or under the earth that was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll 
and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took hold of the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and a voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was uh, slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the beginning ends with the promise of a king. And not a king who will sit in a lofty palace and look down on people and, and use them for his own gain, but rather a king who comes to heal our hurt, to take away our pain, to sacrifice for us the price that we could never pay so that we could have life, life abundance. Lord Jesus, you are that king. And we worship you alone this morning. Amen.